warning. What follows is a story about monsters, madness, and mayhem. I'm Nick. I'm Zach. (laughs) Welcome to Weird and Feared, a barely educational podcast about global folklore that aims to enlighten, entertain, and expand your world. Manuel Trazas Gonzalez was born on the 4th of July, 1891, in the oldest city still standing within Western Europe, the Spanish port city of Cadiz, which has been continuously inhabited with human beings since 1104 BC, approximately 3,100 years. It's an old city. Yes, it is. His father was of Spanish descent and birth, and his mother was Canadian. But both were naturalized U.S. citizens whom were traveling abroad. Now, they eventually moved back to, um, I believe they, he spent his early years in El Paso. That just came to me, I didn't write it down, but just so you know, they came back to America. And when Manuel was 15, bandits raided his family's home. During the attack, both of his parents were wounded, and his two brothers were murdered in front of him. Okay, that sucks. Fourteen years after their deaths, Manuel became a Texas Ranger. So how's that for an origin story? That's pretty cool. It's, yeah, it's, <laughs> I mean... It's, right, I know, I know what you mean. I think it's cool. Manuel probably did not. There's a lot going on in there. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. All right, well, before becoming a Texas Ranger, he had already been a major in the Mexican Army and then spent five years as a special agent for the U.S. Treasury Department after immigrating to the United States. Manuel was married in 1920, the same year he became a Ranger. Texas was, is, a wild place. In 1914, banker and businessman James Ferguson, or rather, Paw Ferguson, as he would affectionately be called, was elected Texas governor. To gain support amongst the common man, during his run for the nomination, he branded himself Farmer Jim, even though he himself was an urbanite city dweller. Again, he's a banker. Yeah, that's weird, but he's but all right. Hey, Farmer Jim. Well, his branding stuck. Without getting too much into the weeds here, he campaigned for the working farmers of Texas who had fallen in hard times and rallied against prohibition, picking up the support of local Texas brewers and beating out his pro-prohibition rival in the Democratic primary. Farmer Jim was successful in passing legislation that would help the farmers, but this bill was rarely enforced and would eventually be ruled unconstitutional in 1921. This showed the average man that he was on their side, that his heart was in the right place, when in reality... Most of his policies would help his wealthy, urban, and industrial constituents constituents instead. Uh-huh. So a little bit of bait and switch here for good old Farmer Jim. Uh-huh. He would be reelected because of this illusion, but as he rose to power, he gained many enemies, several of which were professors at the University of Texas. Not a fan of their dissent, Governor Ferguson applied the weight of his office to the university's president to fire those instructors. But the president of the university refused. Well, that's good. 
Right. Ferguson was unable to convince the Board of Regents, which that's the governing body of Texas's universities, to override the president, President Robert E. Vinson's decision. So Farmer Jim opted to use his gubernatorial power to veto the University of Texas's entire budget appropriation for the coming year. Wow. So there you go. Kind of a dick move. <laughs> there you go. Just yanking out all the money. Yeah. Uh, well, that prompted students to march in the streets. They protested. Powerful University of Texas alumni put their own pressure on the legislature, and the Texas House of Representatives called them into session. Now, the Texas Constitution says that only the governor has the power to call an emergency session of the legislature, but since they were going to assemble regardless of what the governor said, he called them into session in some semblance of maintaining his control over the government. I guess that's the smart thing to right. do. Right. It's like, oh, no, it's okay. Go ahead and do that. Yeah. Well. Don't completely abandon me yet. Right. It's like, oh, no, you're getting together because I say you can. Well, right. I was going to do that. We were going to do that anyways, Jim. Farmer Jim. Hey, Governor Farmer Jim. We're going to do that anyways. Yeah. Governor Farmer Jim. <laughs> uh, well, the uh, Governor Jim, Governor Farmer Jim, Farmer Governor Jim, didn't say they could talk about impeachment as the governor was also the one who would set the agenda during an emergency session. But alas, they talked impeachment anyway and prepared 21 charges against him. He was impeached, and when the trial went to the Texas Senate, they convicted him of 10 of the 21 charges, the most damning dealing with the misallotment of funds, embezzlement to his own bank account, and his own re-election campaign, and accepting a substantial bribe from the local Texas brewers in, the, in, his, um, in his election that won him the governorship. So what would be his punishment? Well, Governor Ferguson would be removed from office and banned from seeking political office anywhere in the state of Texas. Knowing the ways in which the political winds were blowing during the Senate trial, he basically knew they had the votes. Hours before the Senate cast their vote, he resigned. And after the vote was taken, he claimed because he had resigned before the vote was in fact taken, none of those um, punishments applied to him. Oh, well, that's so a little loophole. There's a lot going on. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of manipulating here. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of back and forth politicking. Pa Ferguson didn't give a shit. Because he's banned from office, though, right? Well, yeah. allegedly, is that's what they said. Well, he didn't give a shit, and then he ran in the next Democratic primary for the gubernatorial nomination. Okay. So he's like, I'm doing this anyways. Yeah. Like, what? Well, he was on the ballot, but he lost to his opponent, and it, which wouldn't have mattered anyways, because after this, like, the court upheld the ban on him running for state offices. Okay. So they're like, you lost, but, like, no, it wouldn't have mattered anyways. You're not... I think they're just waiting to see how it played out. Right. But, I mean, they brought the hammer down anyways. Mm-hmm. So, but this did not apply to federal offices, however, and in 1920, he ran for president of the United States. Oh, did he? <laughs> oh, did he? He had his own party called the American Party. Huh. Bold, pretty American. Yeah. Bold name. Yeah. Uh, he lost. Yeah. Well, <laughs> makes sense. Yeah. And then in 1922, he ran for the United States Senate. That, I don't know. Yeah, uh, he lost. Oh, okay. Now, why did I bring up Pa Ferguson? Farmer Jim, Governor James E. Ferguson, or whatever the hell he wants to call himself at all. Mm -hmm. Well, a couple of years later, Farmer Jim would enter his wife's name, or rather he would put her name in the running for Texas governor. And in 1924, Miriam Amanda Wallace Ferguson, or Ma Ferguson, okay. became the first woman governor of Texas. Oh. <laughs> Was this just a workaround to get James Ferguson back in the governor's mansion? Yep. Yes. And everybody knew it, even Miriam herself. 
And she campaigned right alongside her husband, mind you. So he's there by her side the whole time she's, you know, going to events and stuff. He's like, hey, 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 everybody. Whispering in her ear when she's giving speeches. It's funny you say that because she said if elected, she would even consult him for advice. Well, of course. Quote, of them running, you know, of her running, she said, quote, two for the price of one. Yeah. So there's no hiding what's going on here. No. None whatsoever. And uh, one of her campaign slogans, this is what it was, quote, me for ma, and I ain't got a darn thing against pa. Real, <laughs> real catchy, right? I guess. <laughs> it's a real knee slapper, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ma Ferguson was an interesting woman. She didn't drink, but was against prohibition. Was a Southern Democrat, but hated the Ku Klux Klan. And she had this to say about bilingualism in schools. Okay. Where's this going? If, quote, if English was good enough for Jesus Christ, it ought to be good enough for the children of Texas. Wait. (laughs) (laughs) Well, nothing makes sense about that. (laughs) Yes. Again, Texas is a wild place. What? If English was good enough for Jesus Christ, it ought to be good enough for the children of Texas. I mean, I don't think. I don't. I mean. I think Catholic churches were even in English (laughs) until like. They were in Latin. Until like maybe the 1100s at best. (laughs) Oh, God. All right. But cool. That makes sense. Yeah, cool. But Yeah, right. Very cool. Mm -hmm. But still, why did I bring up this governor couple at all? I have no idea. I, mm, because, again, Texas is a wild place. Mm-hmm. In 1915, there was a race war along the American-Mexico border, and it was out of control. Governor James Ferguson sent hundreds of rangers, again, obviously, Texas rangers, and newly minted special rangers to maintain the peace. Now, how did they maintain the peace? Uh, probably not very peacefully. Well, approximately 300 suspected Mexicans were butchered without any trials or convictions of any crimes. They were just suspected of being Mexican? I guess, and that meant they were disloyal to America. Like, you know, people of Mexican descent in America. But then again, keep in mind, this is Texas, so who... Right? I don't know. Well, Governor James Ferguson said to his rangers, basically, Hey, stop killing Mexicans. That seems fair. Please stop. But they did not. Okay. Rangers would lynch Mexicans and even pose for photos with the nooses still around the necks of the slain men. These photos exist, and I've seen them. They're not good. No, they don't sound good. They're not good. Um, very bad. Eventually, in 1919, further investigations brought to light the butchery. The butchery. Well, that's true too. The butchery and brutality of their actions. The special rangers were fired. Other companies of rangers were disbanded. Stricter qualifications for Ranger membership were put into play. It was time to rebuild their image. It was time to give the public a reason to trust them. Again, Manuel Gonzalez became a Ranger in 1920. Uh And in Texas, well, and in Texas and well, Texas itself, it was going, it was in the middle of an oil boom. Where there was oil, there would be new towns, new people, new problems. Texas is a wild place. And back then, even in the 20th century, it was the Wild West. The surplus of money drew in criminals, Mm -hmm. drug runners, smugglers, gamblers, thieves of all kinds. And Manuel, he loved to keep them in check. 
Gonzalez's first assignment was in Wichita County. Generally speaking, he was involved in stopping extra-legal activities from the Red River to the Rio Grande and from El Paso to the Sabine. Quote, He preferred working cases in these border and oil boom towns alone. This quote continues, Only his fiery steed was an automobile and not a white horse. As soon as he arrived somewhere, Gonzalez started filling up the local jail. He often made so many arrests, he overwhelmed the local court system. When prisoners could no longer be packed into the jail, he would secure a length of chain to the flagpole in front of the courthouse. Each new prisoner was handcuffed to the chain until a judge could arraign him. Okay. Get that visual in your head? Yeah. Okay, well, Gonzalez called the chain his trot line, a fishing term, and it worked not only to secure prisoners, but as a deterrent. When bad men saw the chain in front of the courthouse with dozens of men hooked to it, (laughs) Uh (laughs) many of these... Men, uh, them, chose to flee. His reputation as a legendary lawman was well known. It was easier to get out of town. And that little quotation from that article. All right. Do I know more about Manuel? Yeah. Okay. Just hooking people to the flagpole. All right. He was five foot nine and had a scar across his face. Mm-hmm. Of Gonzalez, philanthropist. Uh, wow. Of Gonzalez. Philanthropist and oil man, Watson W. Wise, so his initials are WWW, thank God there was no internet back then, he would have, anyways, said he was a soft-spoken man and his trigger finger was slightly bent. He always told me it was geared to that forty-five of his. He was a very serious fella. Sounds like it. All right, Wise has got more to say. He was sent out to Picos one time to stop a ride out there, added Wise. When he got off the train, there was a great posse waiting to greet him. And when they saw he was alone, they said, Where's all your help, Mr. Gonzalez? And he said, There's only one riot, isn't there? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) In 1930, the town of Kilgore experienced its own oil boom. Towns like Kilgore received influxes of all kinds looking to get rich. But what does that mean? Like, what kind of population increase are we talking about? Well, do you want to know how fast this town's population increased? Sure. The number of people living in the town, again, this is like depression, pre-depression era stuff. The number of people living in that town increased from 700 to 10,000 in two weeks. Whoa. (laughs) What? (laughs) Can you even imagine that? That's terrifying. Especially if you lived there for like a year. You're like, what is happening? It's just a storm of people. Yeah. Right? This is like what would have happened if people actually invaded Area 51. Just, anyway. yeah. <laughs> hey, well, we've been here for years, and now we have hey, oh two million God. people here. Your road, the town is being destroyed by... What are you guys doing? Well, this was the kind of chaotic environment Manuel looked for and thrived in. From the American Oil and History Gas Society website, just, I found it, don't ask mm-hmm. why. Mr. Wise continues... Now, it says he rode a, had a car before, but he did not just have a car. He didn't have a white stallion, but he rode a black stallion named Tony and often sported two pearl-handled, silver-mounted forty-five pistols. On his chest was a shining Texas Ranger star. And I've looked up, you can look up pictures of these pistols, and like his initials are like embroidered on the handle. Oh, and yeah. like they're very fancy. That's cool. All right, well, he came down there one man and shot about three people and cleaned the place out. He used to show me that finger and say that it gets itchy. He'd give you a warning. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. 
he'd give you a warning. And if you didn't heed it, he'd shoot you. Sometimes he would just shoot for your leg. Mm-hmm. That's nice. According to the same article, another businessman, an oil man, Herman Engel, said that the lawman was highly suspicious of anyone without calloused hands. To make his presence known, Gonzalez paraded his suspects down Kilgore's muddy, crowded streets again with a trot line. He likes that. Mm-hmm. He likes just hooking them on like a barrel of monkeys. Just kind of latched them together. Look mm-hmm. at all my guys. Look what I got. Yeah. And everyone's like, oh my God. Well, one evening after two weeks of investigation and raids, Gonzalez triumphantly marched more than 300 men before the town's law-abiding citizens. He chained them to a long steel cable, Engel said. Their identities were checked. They were told they could go free if they left town in four hours. Okay. Most left town in 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Wake up. <laughs> well. See you. Bye. The ranger gave potential criminals and ne'er-do-wells what he considered fair warning. This is a Gonzalez quote. Crime may expect no quarter in Kilgore, Gonzalez proclaimed. Gambling houses, slot machines, whiskey rings, and dope peddlers might as well save the trouble of opening because they will not be tolerated in any degree. Drifters and transients have their choice of three things, engaging in legitimate business, getting out of town, or going to jail. Okay. The article states that local storytellers said he shot about 75 men. Damn. Gonzalez considered this a, quote, gross exaggeration. How gross? I wish I could have known. <laughs> was it like 60? Yeah. He's like, yeah, 75 is too much. Like, right? Come so, on, guys. That's unreasonable. It was only 60. I, I shot 61. Well, okay, 61 and a half. Does that count? Yeah. I mean, if I shot him in a leg, does that really count as shooting him? No. No, it doesn't count. Just a warning. Yeah, just a warning. Well, this next story I found in some random message board with that was linked to with a dead link, but mm-hmm. I don't care. We're going to talk about it. Okay. Gonzalez was in a Tyler hotel trying to get some needed rest just past midnight when his sleep was interrupted by a great amount of commotion below. There was loud talking, raucous laughter, boisterous yelling, and general racket. Thinking it would soon cease, he laid a pillow over his head, but that had little deadening effect. When it became evident that there would be no immediate let-up to the noise, he got out of bed, went to the window, and stuck his head out of it, calling to them to pipe down. Because of impatience, he was sharp in tone. Okay, yeah. That did it. Members of the group were incensed that anyone would have the gall to admonish them to be quiet. One of them snarled at him to mind your own business. Mm-hmm. That, that was, probably didn't go over well. Yeah, how do you think that went? Not well. That was no more acceptable to Gonzalez than his complaint had been to them, so he carried the matter a bit further by offering to come down and force them to stop. <laughs> okay. In a bellicose manner, one of the group shouted, You don't have to come down here. We'll come up there. So up the stairs they trampled and commenced banging loudly on the door to his room. He opened the door and admitted them. But they did a double take, and they recognized him. My God, boys, he shouted. All right. How good is your Spanish? Way bien. Because Gonzalez had a nickname. Okay. Do you want to know what it was? Yeah. El Lobo Solo. Can you piece that together? I mean, it's just the lone... I don't know what Lobos would mean. I'm about to tell you. 
I mean, I've heard it plenty. I just yes. don't know what it translates as. Well, El Lobo Solo translates to the lone wolf. That's what I would have guessed. He's known as the lone wolf. Mm-hmm. It's the lone wolf! Let's scram! Mm-hmm. And they did just that. See ya. The sounds that ensued was total. End of that little story. So, you've just been introduced to the lone wolf, mm-hmm. Manuel Gonzalez. Yeah, he seems like a cool guy. He seems incredible. Is uh, Chuck Norris based off of him? I'm enamored with this man. He's absurd. Not Chuck Norris, but a Walker, Texas Ranger. <laughs> yeah, Chuck. <laughs> Chuck Norris is based off him. In a way, because Chuck Norris became, you know, Walker, Texas Ranger. All of a sudden, he's just that guy in real life now. Right. But I mean, yes, it has to be. Obviously, this is the first guy. Yeah. This is the first. This guy is the ultimate badass lawman. Yep. From the previous article. The uh, the gas website that I talked about, American History Gas website, continues mm-hmm. and states he never admitted exactly how many men had seen the business end of his working guns, including customized revolvers and semi-automatic guns of all kinds. He reportedly had hundreds in a collection taken from those he caught and convicted. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah, right? Absolutely. It's just got a trunk full of guns. All right, the updated 1998 uh, version of Brownson's Malsh, that's a guy's name. Brownson Malsh's book, Lone Wolf, Gonzalez, Texas Ranger. Uh, of course, the book's Lone Wolf, Gonzalez, Texas Ranger. The lawman had a personal collection of 580 guns plus knives, clubs, and other weapons when he retired. Jeez. What are other weapons? Yeah. We've asked this question before, probably like a year ago. What are other weapons? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. Many stories went untold as to the criminals he had acquired them from. Malish writes, Lone Wolf simply said, quote, some have real stories behind them, but it's nobody's business where they came from. Again, like you said, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. I guarantee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it is said that the Lone Wolf was courteous to men and women alike, except when it came to criminals, where Gonzalez's utter fearlessness and his deadly accuracy with pistols and rifles are credited with allowing him to survive. The Ranger also was an insanely, intensely, not insanely, that's a little much. He was an intensely religious man. Malsh explains, but he was a keen student of the Bible and later in life carried a copy of the New Testament in his pocket and copies in his car. He handed these out to errant men whom he thought might be remolded into useful citizens. Wow. So he's like, learn something, you fuck, and throws it at him. Yeah. I don't know if he'd say fuck. Maybe. Maybe. It depends on what kind of a tough guy he is. Yeah. He's like a tough guy that doesn't swear or a tough guy that has like a sailor mouth. It can go either way. Yeah, it can go either way. I think he probably didn't swear though. I mean, I think his actions spoke for themselves and you just wouldn't want to mess around with him. Right. All right. Well, now Ma Ferguson had lost her reelection bid after her first term, but would run for governor again and win in 1932. Well, in 1932, the Texas Rangers had backed the incumbent Ross Sterling. So Ma Ferguson, not one to hold a grudge or anything, cleared their ranks by firing every single Ranger including Manuel Gonzalez. Oh, okay. This forced the Rangers to rebuild their entire organization just as they were making strides to restore their reputation after the race violence that had occurred during her husband's administration. With the Rangers' experience depleted, instead filled with rookies unprepared for what awaited them, a new era of unchecked hell swept the Texas frontier. So, I mean, that's cool to do. Just fire your whole high-ranking police force right. because they voted they were supporting someone else in a democratic election right cool like, no okay cool well 
that situation only lasted for two years because the Texas legislature was not pleased with this. I bet. <laughs> As you can imagine. Yeah. No. Mm. And to further redeem the Texas Rangers in 1935, the Texas Rangers, because before this, they were like subservient to the governor. I, you know how much I read about the Texas Rangers? Uh, probably a lot. Enough. Yeah. But the point was they were subservient, like answering answerable to the, just the governor. So mm-hmm. they took them out of that branch and put them in like an actual law division. So like they're a separate thing. So not, something that makes a little bit more sense. Yes, exactly. Because the Texas Rangers were started by, um, oh fuck, what was his name? The point was it was 10 guys and um, was it Austin? It was somebody, somebody important. One of the original Texas dudes that was an important guy. Okay. Like he paid 10 guys out of his own pocket and that was the beginning of the Texas Rangers because he's like, we need somebody to do something. Okay. That's, where, that's, their, that's their origin. That's their origin story? I, I gave you the cliff notes. Yeah, the yeah. Cliff, I gave you the massive cliff notes. Cool. So they put them under the Texas Department of Public Safety, which convis- consisted of three divisions, Texas Highway Patrol, the Texas Rangers, and the Bureau of Intelligence. Well, the Lone Wolf was appointed superintendent of the Bureau of Intelligence and was crucial in turning it into one of the best crime laboratories in the United States, second only to that of the FBI. All right. What is he doing? It's a big deal. Yes. In 1940, Gonzalez resigned from his position as superintendent and rejoined the Rangers as captain of B Company, based in Dallas, being the first captain of Spanish ancestry. Gonzalez was back with the Rangers. And as it turns out, they were going to need him. The Lone Wolf, back in action, part two. Fact. On February 22nd, 1946, Jimmy Hollis, aged 25, and his girlfriend, Mary Jean Larry, age 19. Mary Larry? I mean, yeah, that's her name. Or okay. Larry, L-A-R-E-Y. That's Larry. We're going with Larry. All right. Mary Larry. Oh, fuck, man. <laughs> when you read shit, you don't say it out loud. Yeah. Well... Um, well, they had just seen a movie when they decided to drive out to a secluded roadway, a lover's lane of sorts. Exactly. That's, ex- that's exactly what a lover's lane is. Do some debating. They're going to do some debating mm-hmm. at around 1145 PM. What follows is from Wikipedia. Around 10 minutes later at 1155 PM, a man wearing a white cloth mask which resembled a pillowcase with eye holes cut out, appeared at Hollis's driver's side door and shined a flashlight in the window. Unsure if the man was pranking him, Hollis told him he had the wrong person, to which the man responded, I don't want to kill you, fellow, so do what I say. No. Both Hollis, <laughs> both Hollis and Larry were ordered out the driver's side door, and the man ordered Hollis to take off his goddamn britches. Mm, that's not good. After he complied, the man struck him in the head twice with a pistol. Larry, Mary Larry, Mary Larry, Mary Larry, yeah, would later tell investigators that the noise was so loud she initially thought he had been shot, when it had actually been his skull fracturing. Ouch! Thinking the assailant wanted to rob them, Larry showed him Hollis's wallet to prove he had no money. After which she was struck with a blunt object. The assailant ordered her to stand. I'm assuming it's probably still a gun. Probably. The assailant ordered her to stand, and when she did, told her to run. Initially, she tried to flee toward a ditch, but the assailant ordered her to run a different direction up the road. 
you should have been more clear the first time. <laughs> right. <laughs> Run. No, that way. <laughs> All right. Larry spotted an old car parked off the road but found it empty and was again confronted by the attacker who asked her why she was running. What? <laughs> when she responded that he had told her to do so, he called her a liar before knocking her down and sexually assaulting her with the barrel of his gun. Oh, no. Oh, yeah, real bad. That guy real bad, right? Bad guy. After the assault, Larry fled on foot, running a half mile to a nearby house. She attempted to call for a car passing by the residence, but was ignored. Larry was able to awaken the residents of the house and phone the police. Meanwhile, Hollis had regained consciousness and managed to flag down a passerby on Richmond Road. The motorist left Hollis at the scene and drove to a nearby funeral home where he was able to call the police. Within 30 minutes... Bowie County Sheriff, or Bowie, probably Bowie, probably Bowie. Probably. Bowie County Sheriff W.H. Bill Presley and three other officers arrived at the scene of the attack, but the assailant had already left. They found Hollis's pants 100 yards away from the parked car. Interesting. Right? That guy sounds like a bad dude. Yeah, not good. Yeah. Why did he want him to take his pants off? I don't know, man. But the direct quote was, take off your goddamn britches. Hmm. So imagine somebody yelling at you who's going to do very bad things to you, saying britches. I'm like, ah, oh, this is even worse. These aren't britches, man. Jeez. And then he bashes, maybe he's, then he bashes your head in with the butt of his gun. Mm-hmm. Larry was hospitalized overnight for a minor head wound. Hollis was hospitalized for several days to recover from multiple skull fractures. But both survived the attack. Hollis and Larry gave conflicting reports to law enforcement as to what their attacker looked like. Larry claimed the man was wearing a white bag over his head with cutouts for the eyes and mouth and that she could see under the mask that he was apparently African-American. Hollis alternatively claimed the man was white and around 30 years old, but conceded he could not distinguish his features as he had been blinded with a flashlight. Both agreed that the assailant was around six feet tall. (laughs) Okay. Law enforcement repeatedly challenged Larry's account and believed that she and Hollis knew the identity of their attacker and were covering for him. Because, you know, that's what, what I would what, do. Why? I would, that's what I would do, right? If someone Quit covering ba- for him. If somebody break, gives you multiple skull fractures, you want to, you know, just keep that identity secret, right? Yeah. Weird. Richard L. Griffin, age 20 wine? Uh, nope. No wine tonight. No, no wine tonight. Richard L. Griffin, age 29, and his uh, girlfriend of six weeks, Polly Ann Moore, age 17. That's fine. It's a different time. Mm-hmm. We're found... Well, I shouldn't laugh for, before I say what I'm about to say. <laughs> that's, okay. that's not funny. I was right. laughing at the age discrepancy. But Richard was 29, Polly Ann Moore, age 17. Wait. I didn't realize it was 29 and 17. Okay. Oh, yeah. That's what... Uh-huh. That's what's my like. Oh, well. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. They were found dead in Griffin's 1941 Oldsmobile sedan on Sunday, March 24th, 1946, between 8.30 and 9 a.m. by a passing motorist. The motorist saw the parked car on a lover's lane. The motorist at first thought that both were asleep. Griffin was found between the front seats on his knees with his head resting on his crossed hands and his pockets turned inside out. Moore was found sprawled face down in the back seat. Hmm, that's not good. No. Um, This also is not good. Griffin had been shot twice while still in the car. Both had been shot once in the back of the head 
and both were fully clothed. A blood-soaked patch of earth near the car suggested to police that they had been killed outside the car and placed back inside. Congealed blood was found covering the running board, and it had flowed through the bottom of the car door. A 32, uh, you know, cartridge was a shell was also found, possibly shot from a Colt pistol wrapped in a blanket. Huh. On the evening of Saturday, April 13th, Betty Jo Booker, age 15, was playing her alto saxophone in her regular weekly gig with her band, the Rhythmares, at the VFW Club at West 4th and Oak Street. Around 1.30 a.m. Sunday morning, April 14th, her friend Paul Martin, age 16, arrived to pick her up from the performance. Martin's body was found at around 6.30 a.m. that morning by Mr. and Mrs. G.H. Weaver and their son, lying on its left side by the northern edge of North Park Road. Blood was found further down on the other side of the road by a fence. He had been shot four times, once through the nose, again through the left fourth rib from behind, a third time in the right hand, and finally through the back of the neck. Ouch. Yeah. Booker's body was not found until approximately 11.30 a.m., almost two miles away from Martin's body behind a tree. Her body was lying on its back, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Fully clothed, with the right hand in the pocket of the buttoned overcoat. Booker had been shot twice, once to the chest, and once in the face. The weapon used was the same as the first double murder. 32 automatic Colt pistol. Huh. So we've got two double murders happening right now. Yeah. One, uh... An attempted Double, one. uh, beatdown. Uh-huh. On Friday, May 3rd... Sometime before 9 p.m., Virgil Starks, age 37, a farmer and welder, was in his modest ranch-style house on a 500-acre farm off Highway 67 East, almost 10 miles northeast of Texacarna. That's important because they all happen around Texacarna. Mm-hmm. He turned in his favorite weekly radio show, and his wife, Katie, age 36, gave him a heating pad for a sore back. He sat in his armchair in the sitting room, which was just off of the kitchen and the bedroom. While Katie was in her bedroom lying on the bed in her nightgown, she heard something from the backyard and asked Virgil to turn down the radio. Seconds later, while Virgil was reading the May 3rd edition of the Texacarna Gazette, local newspaper, obviously, Mm -hmm. it's important, two shots were fired into the back of his head from a closed double window three feet away. Katie did not hear the gunshots. Instead, she heard what sounded like the breaking of glass. Because he didn't turn down the radio. Right. So, gunshots, yeah, right. He wasn't, yeah, he wasn't listening to his wife. Yeah. So, well, I was going to say that's what you get, but that's not what you get. You don't get shot two times in the back of the head. For not listening for to your not, wife. Not listening to your wife. Unless you really pissed her off. Like, yeah, unless she's the one that shoots you, and there's yeah. a whole separate thing. Yep. Well, she had thought Virgil had dropped something and went to see what happened. As she entered the doorway to the living room, she saw Virgil stand up and then suddenly slump back into his chair. She saw blood, then ran to him and lifted up his head. When she realized he was dead, she ran to the phone to call the police. She rang the wall crank phone two times before being shot twice in the face from the same window. One bullet entered her right cheek and exited behind her left ear. The other went in, yes, the other went in just below her lip, breaking her jaw and splintering out several teeth before lodging under her tongue. She dropped to her knees but soon managed to get back on her feet. She ran to get a pistol from the living room, but was blinded by her own blood. 
I'm pretty sure Wikipedia quoted straight from a certain book because this is written like a story. Uh-huh. She heard the killer tearing loose the rusted screen wire on the back porch. And I know which book it is, but I mention it later. The killer was tearing loose the rusted screen wire on the back porch. So he's trying to break in here. Uh-huh. She thought she was going to be killed. So she stumbled toward her bedroom near the front of the house to leave a note. Meanwhile, the killer ran to the back of the house and made his way up the steps and into the side screen porch through the back screen door. She heard the killer coming through the kitchen window, so she turned around and ran through the dining room, through the bedroom, down a hall, through another bedroom, and then into the living room and out the front door, leaving behind a virtual river of blood and teeth throughout the house and across the street. Barefoot and still in her blood-soaked nightgown, she ran across the street to her sister and brother-in-law's house. Because no one was home, she ran 50 yards to a A.V. Prater's house. Prater answered her call for help. She gasped. Virgil's dead. And then collapsed. Ouch. Ouch. Prater shot a rifle in the air to summon another neighbor, Elmer Taylor. Prater called to Taylor to bring his car because Mr. and Mrs. Starks had been shot. Taylor, along with Mr. and Mrs. Prater and their baby, rode with Mrs. Starks to Michael Meager's Hospital, now Miller County Health Unit, as, I mean, that means a lot to you. At 503 Walnut Street, Mrs. Starks gave Mr. Taylor the driver one of her teeth with a gold filling. She was in a semi-conscious state, slumping forward on the front seat. Though she lost a considerable amount of blood, she showed no signs of going into shock, and her heart rate remained normal. Miller County Sheriff W.E. Davis, who became head of the investigation, questioned Mrs. Starks in the operating room. Mrs. Starks, uh, she survives. Yeah. So okay. she's not murdered. Mm-hmm. So that was a slew of terrible things I just read to you. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts about those those uh, happenings? Uh, they're pretty brutal. I they're, mean, not, they're not good. No, they're not good. Uh, I mean, that last one's a bit of a surprise, where it seems like the other ones, they aren't ambushed, you know, so much, but... Yeah. Still probably pretty surprising. Right. Yeah, not good. And I mean, those the people who, of course, you know, were murdered... We don't know what this guy had them do before they were murdered. Like we do the first couple who survived. Right. Who got away. And I mean, this last couple, he just shoots through the window, so. Right. Well, once Mr. Starks was murdered, the town was overwhelmed with hysteria. Like after the first double murder, parents pressured their children in not staying out late. But after the second, curfews were set in place for local businesses. But by the death of Mr. Starks, social panic was reaching fevered pitches it was time to call in some help it was time to enlist the help of the texas rangers uh-huh. and with that manuel gonzalez el lobo solo arrived all right so the lone wolf is here uh-huh. ready to set the town straight he's ready to do something exactly lay down the law because he is the lawman i'm sure he's got his what do you call his, his trout line Ooh, yeah, it's trout line. I'm sure he got his cable ready to just snatch this guy up. The murders were in the Texarkana metropolitan area, which comprises both Texarkana, Texas, and the neighboring town of Texarkana, Arkansas. Makes sense. So that's, you know, that's what you do. Yeah. As you do when you're naming towns. Yeah. I've driven through Kentucky, Anna. Yeah? Yeah. A lot of cool names. Yeah. Pretty, pretty sweet. <laughs> Pretty uh, creative. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. I mean, it gets the point across. Well, and it's next to Texas and Arkansas, so of course it'd be Texarkana. Right. That's a cool name. It's a lot mm-hmm. going on. When I look at that name in my writing, I just look at all those letters, and like, there's a lot going on. Yep. Well, these murders, they have been known as the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. Mm-hmm. Upon arriving, Manuel Gonzalez vowed he wouldn't leave the area until the murderer was caught. After the death of Betty Joe Booker and Paul Martin, a headline read in the Texana Daily News. Phantom killer eludes officers as investigations of slangs pressed. And with that, the murderer finally got his name. The Phantom Killer. Oh. Yeah, wow. Not the Phantom Menace. No, not the Phantom Menace. Wow. What if it was... <laughs> Whoa. That's originally what Star Wars is about. That's tough. That's... it. Was, I mean... It's <laughs> <laughs> just mm-hmm. a guy... And it takes place along the Texas Arkansas border <laughs> of Naboo. <laughs> I mean, Manuel Gonzalez is a character out of Star Wars. Yeah, I he, mean he is—he's the law. He is the law. The newspaper would also go on to state via Wikipedia. I'm just saying, I'm pulling things from that the killer might strike again at any moment, at any place, and at any one. Before, it was normal to leave one's house unlocked, but soon residents started locking doors, pulling down shades, blocking windows, and arming themselves with guns. Some people nailed sheets over their windows or nailed the windows down. Some used screen door braces as window guards. The day after Stark's death, several residents bought firearms and locks. Stores sold out of locks, guns, ammunition, window shades, and Venetian blinds. How big of a town is this, did you say? Or do you know? Um, I relatively sized. You should, we should probably look that up. I was looking it up. For sure. You can keep doing it. All right, beautiful. I will. I'll do a little Google. Yeah, put it into the uh, put it into perspective. What year are we looking at? Uh, 1946. So a big war just ended also, by the way. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the important ones. Yeah. Kind of world changing. Mm-hmm. Additional items of which sales increased included window sash locks, screen door hooks, night latches, and other protective devices. That weekend, Texarkana residents kept the police busy by flooding the station with uh, reports of prowlers. One officer stated that nearly all of the alarms were the result of excitement, wild imagination, and even near hysteria. Now, we've talked about this before. I mean, this, these are all the signs of a mess, but guess what? This isn't some fictional Bigfoot creature, potentially. This is a real man who's committed real murders, who's caused real harm. Yeah, uh, I got the population here. It's a little weird because it's broken down by race. But, uh, Do your best. In 1946, we're looking at about 17,000. Right, so I mean, it's decent size. It's decent people. Yeah, it's, it's pretty small. It's down. smaller. It depends on the perspective, but yeah, yeah. Right. So yeah, a little scary. Yeah. So imagine all those people in that town buying up all the guns and weapons that are available to them. Yeah, it's a lot of guns running around there. I mean, the town is ready for war. Uh-huh. And everybody is on edge. Farmhouses and neighborhoods blaze with lights. Several businesses, including cafes, theaters, and nightclubs, lost many customers. One business reported a 20% drop in sales. And that's not a small drop in sales. The no. evenings... No, it's not. The evenings were hopping but the streets were practically deserted when dawn approached. 
The city became a virtual ghost town. Because of the drop in business, liquor stores began closing at 9.30 p.m. And a statement was posted in the paper saying, quote, We fully understand the state of mind in which Texarkana is now gripped, and we are selling no liquor to persons who already have been drinking. We do not wish to... <laughs> Okay. We do not wish to add further to the troubles of the police. Any person who drinks whiskey at this time to get drunk and wander about the streets of Texarkana is further complicating the works of the police. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Responsible liquor store owners. Yeah, they're like, come on, guys. Yeah. Like you're making it because imagine they're they're looking for like a weird weirdo prowler, and if you have a drunk just like pacing, like, <laughs> yeah, like, wait. <laughs> Hey, dude. It's like, uh, yeah, because the whole town's gripped in fear of this. Right, so even exactly. like, these guys are like, eh, let's just try to get this wrapped up as quick as we can. Yeah, can we just speed it along? We're losing revenue here. We want the normal people to come out and buy stuff. Yeah. You drunky McDrunkerson over here. Yeah. It's just pacing. And then imagine the cop who walks up to me and he's just guys, it's like, all right. Mm-hmm. All right. And is placing himself, these are the people who are walking around wasted, they're placing themselves, his or herself, I won't be, it says himself, but it could be anybody, probably himself though, mm-hmm. in grave danger of being shot by people whose nerves are on edge from the recent murders. That's fair. Very fair. An old lady went out and buys a gun. She's sitting on like her porch and this- Drunk guy m- stumbles by. He misses his block and she's mm-hmm. just like, bam, bam, well now he's dead. Mm-hmm. Because citizens were considerably jittery and armed with guns, Texarkana became a very dangerous place. When driving up, officers had to turn on their sirens, stand in their headlights, and announce themselves to keep from being shot by a nervous homeowner. Flip everything on. I'm a cop! Yeah, everybody. Cop, hey! It's pretty tense. Hey, I'm a cop here. Yeah. Two officers were patrolling a vacant road when one got out of their car and approached another car with a couple sitting inside. He said, quote, I am Tillman Johnson with the Miller County Sheriff's Department. He's an important guy. Aren't you scared to be parked out here at night? The girl replied, you're the one that ought to be scared, mister. It's a good thing you told me who you are. Mm-hmm. And she revealed that she had been pointing a 25 ACP pistol at him the whole time. Whoa. Yeah, well, all right. Okay. In order to go to someone's house, you had to call in advance and let them know to expect you. Because, again, like, phones are not as, like, so you could just come to somebody's house. Yeah, you're not texting them, hey, I'm in the driveway. Right. Or, like, you know, it's more common to just walk over. It's like, hey, I want to make sure, pick up. Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. I'm kind of, well, he could I'm on my here. way there. I'm on my, yeah, I'm, I'm about to leave to head to you. Okay. A fearful tavern proprietor shot a customer in search of beer in the foot. Well, at least it was just his foot. Maybe. Still probably hurt. I mean, it wasn't good. I mean, probably lose a toe. Yep. And I don't think in 1946, well, they probably could. A lot of doctors were around who've seen the war from gunshot wounds and stuff. I was just thinking how hard it would be to piece your foot back together after being shot through it. Yeah. Probably not good. Still not great. No. The newspaper did not shy away from confirming to their entire reading audience that, yes, they were freaking out and everything was crazy. Mm-hmm. Captain Gonzalez would take to the radio on Tuesday evening to address that very thing, to calm the people of Texarkana and let them know everything was under control. Right? Uh-huh. Or did he seek to instill fear within a killer that as of this moment had proven himself invincible? He said that the righteous citizens of the greater Texarkana metropolitan area 
should, quote, oil up their guns and see if they are loaded. Okay. <laughs> Put them out of the reach of children. Mm-hmm. Do not use them unless it's necessary. But if you believe it is, do not hesitate. So he's just open season. Mm-hmm. Shoot. On another way to prepare oneself or protect oneself from the killer, he said, quote, I tell them to check the locks and bolts on their doors and get a double-barreled shotgun to take care of any intruder who tried to get in, end quote. But protecting oneself wasn't all citizens were worried about. Police officers executed a car chase as they noticed a strange car following a bus out of town where they had to shoot out its tires to get it to stop. Well, that's not good. That no. person wasn't up to, you know, normal stuff. Well, do you want to know who they arrested? Yeah. They arrested a high school athlete, star athlete, who said he didn't stop for them because they were in an unmarked car and that he was following the bus because he thought he saw someone suspicious get on it. Well, that's all sorts of... So he's he's out <laughs> being a hero and the yeah. cops think he's the bad guy. And of course, the guy who got on the bus was probably just a guy getting on the bus. Yeah. He was the guy that got drunk before they closed the liquor store. Can down. you can you imagine this town? Yeah. How tense everything was. Leaving your house, even if you're just an innocent person now. I mean, they had sirens on the car, I'm guessing, and he just didn't stop. Even if it's an unmarked car, that seems a little risky. Right. Yeah, it's true. They, they didn't mention the sirens, but I assume they would have had them on. Before they start shooting tires out, <laughs> you'd think so. <laughs> Yeah, then it's no wonder he's not stopping. He's like, well, they're shooting at me. Yeah, let's give the cops credit and say there were sirens in the car. Or something went on. I mean, yeah, something clearly something's going on here. Unless they were just in a car with no sirens, which then all sorts of crazy things are about to happen. Yeah. They shoot at his tires and like, hey, police. Yeah. (laughs) What? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, we're the cops, by the way. (laughs) Okay. Why well Can you fix my tires? Yeah, help. Manuel Gonzalez, the lone wolf, said that, quote, teenage sleuths, quote, need to back off because, quote, it's a good way to get killed. Sounds about right. But Manuel Gonzalez himself was dead set on catching the phantom. He enlisted the help of his own band of teenagers and positioned them all over town as decoys. Bait. How do you feel about that plan? Not great if I'm the one being the bait. He was hoping to lure the phantom out from the shadows and catch him in the act. Of course, his act is murder. So, wow. Hmm. Okay. I mean, naturally, these teens would be surrounded by undercover cops or like Texas Rangers. But I mean. Still seems a little risky. And many of these teenagers were even sons and daughters of Texas Rangers. So it's a family affair. Mm -hmm. But officers, they also acted as decoys. And some... Imagine this guy on a stakeout, sitting alone in a car with a mannequin, hoping you look like a young couple, Yeah. and this psychopath with a pillowcase on his head tries to shoot you with his colt. Okay. He runs up at you and tries to make you take off your britches. Yeah. Doesn't sound like a great day at work, but... No. Well, this may surprise you, but despite their best efforts, this battle strategy yielded no results. Hmm. So, who was this phantom? And how did the press feel about naming him that? Was it overly dramatic? I mean, the press didn't really care. Right. Or at least executive J.Q. Mahaffey, 
who said when asked about like why like should we stop naming him the Phantom? Why is he being called the Phantom? Mm-hmm. He's like, quote, why not? If the SOB continues to elude capture, he certainly can be called a Phantom. It's valid. All right. Bowie County Sheriff William Bill H. Presley said, this killer is the luckiest person I've ever known. No one sees him, hears him in time, or can identify him in any way. Gonzalez considered him a, quote, shrewd, a shrewd criminal who had left no stone unturned to conceal his identity and activities, and that the murderer's efforts were both clever and baffling. He also stated that the man they were hunting was a cunning individual who would go to all lengths to avoid apprehension. Now, after the murder of Virgil Starks, the majority of the 47 officers on the case unofficially believed that the killer's motives were of that of, quote, sex mania. Sex mania. Sex mania. Okay. I don't know how I feel about that running wild. Just saying. Sex mania running wild? Yeah. Sounds like a hair metal song. Mm-hmm. But like, if if everything that's happened up to this point is what sex mania is, I don't think I like sex mania. No. It's not what I would admit, imagine sex mania. No. That's not. I mean, their their um, you know, connotations towards sex mania are a little more deranged. Take off your goddamn britches. Take off your britches. Mm-hmm. Bash, bash. Oh my god. Doesn't sound like a great run, song. Run away. <laughs> run away. Yeah. No, run no, that way. No, not that way. Why are you running? You told me to run. Liar, smash. What the hell? Yeah, this, is what very, the hell? this is a very confused song. <laughs> As lyrics, that's insane. Yeah. This way, that way, smash. Take off your britches. All right. <laughs> that's an all right. All right. That's enough. That's enough, you fucking asshole. Mm-hmm. One of the officers stated, said, quote, I believe that a sex pervert is responsible. What? Are there other kind of perverts? I feel like maybe... Did we just drop the sex I, part of the pervert you. thing That's now? A, thank you very much. That's where I was going to go. Like, we thought, like, ah, it's, we just decided... It's again, many words. We decided pervert is all is all sex perverts. Yeah. There's, like, it had to evolve. I mean, modern people, are, they just got to cut. Like, we just want it to say as less as possible. Yeah. 140 characters. Sex the pervert. Sex mania pervert. <laughs> it's like, whoa. It's like, uh, let's just... Let's just... Yeah, let's just... Shorten that up a little let's bit. Let's just call him a perv. Yeah. <laughs> just a straight up perv. Mm-hmm. Well... So, how long did it take the rangers and the police to catch the phantom? Peggy Swinney was arrested walking towards a car that had been reported stolen. Officer Max Tackett, another important dude, who had noticed that a car had been stolen on the night of the first murders, decided to search for other stolen cars and try to make some kind of connection. He had noticed this particular car was reported stolen and proceeded to stake it out, and that's when he found Peggy. Peggy claimed she had just gotten married, but that her husband was in Atlanta, Texas, trying to sell another stolen car. There was a report of someone trying to sell a stolen car in Atlanta, Texas, that had been reported to the police. The okay. citizen, yeah, right? The citizen mm-hmm. had a distinct look. The person who the car was, like the attempted sale. Mm-hmm. So the guy's like, hey, you want to buy a car? And this is the guy who's like, what? A car? Yeah. What? Sure, well, Mr. Pillow case head man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, the citizen had a distinct look. Cowboy boots and a cowboy hat. They emphasize that it's distinct. And even though it's Texas, so I imagine this guy looks absurd. If yeah. it's worth noting in Texas that he has a cowboy hat and boots. He's got like a hot pink He's got to have some hat or something. Oh my God, I hope he had that in 1946. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> right? Yeah. His boots have some kind of accent on them or whatever. Mm-hmm. Some kind of neon snake skin. Snake He's skin like, cowboy. This guy wants to sell me a car. That's nobody's <laughs> accent. I'm just making a voice. That's nobody's accent. Yep. I don't, yep. Nope. Well, this citizen claimed cowboy man. That's what I'm going to call him. Cowboy man claimed that he didn't. I don't know <laughs> that he didn't remember what the guy who tried to sell him the card looked like. But Max believed that a, well, he would remember you. <laughs> so like this guy's got to stand out. Mm-hmm. So Max walked around town with hopes that tailing this man would spook the car thief. It autocorrected to spooky, by the way. I know I didn't write that, but it's funny to say. <laughs> uh huh. That this man would spook the car thief into revealing himself. You know, like he'd see this guy and be like, oh yeah. shit, that's the, oh yeah, shit. see him react and be like, uh-huh. oh, well, that was weird. When the citizen, when Cowboy Man walked inside of a bus stop, Max Tackett, and like what a cool name is Max Tackett, let's be honest here. Mm-hmm. Max Tackett noticed someone run out the back fire escape. Max chased this man out there and caught him. His name was U.L. Swinney, Peggy's husband. Mm-hmm. When Max Tackett apprehended UL in the fire escape. Oh, was it Yule? U O U E L L. Yule? U L? Yule? U O U E L L? A lot of vowels, yeah. Ool. Uh, I don't know. Ool. I wish. I hope it's <laughs> Ool. That's an interesting know, name. Right? I'm not familiar with that one. Nope. You know, when you come across words, but you never heard them out loud. Like, How do you say this? Huh? Yeah. Well, but so when he said, please don't shoot me, Tackett. Potentially offended at the overreaction, said, I'm not going to shoot you for stealing cars. Swinney retorted, Mr. Don't play games with me. You want me more than just stealing cars. Oh. Well. Well. (laughs) Well, what what more would I want you for? (laughs) Go on. (laughs) Elaborate. Go on. But while in custody within a squad car, Swinney asked Chief Deputy Tillman Johnson, Mr. Johnson, what do you think they'll do to me for this? Will they give me the chair? Johnson said, you won't get much. Maybe five or ten years. For stealing cars? Yeah, they don't give you the electric chair for stealing cars. Yeah. Swinney then said, Mr. Johnson, you got me for more than stealing cars. And this guy doesn't know when yeah, to shut up. Be quiet. Yeah. Eventually, a lawyer contacted Peggy. And said, tell your husband <laughs> to shut the fuck up. <laughs> Why is he saying all these things? <laughs> yeah. Informing her that her husband was arrested for murder. She said, how do they find out? Oh my God, these guys are idiots. (laughs) With Peggy in custody, they walked her to where Paul Martin's car was found. It was found like a mile or so, maybe three miles. It was found away from his. I cut it out of here because I was trying to condense as much necessary information. But his car was found away from his body. They walked Peggy over there. Peggy told them she'd been in the woods there before. I mean, she's kind of she's working with them. She's been telling him stuff about fucking her husband, mm-hmm. so she's kind of like you know, basically like ratting on him. And when they went into the woods, the officers found heel prints, woman's heel prints. You also when he had owned a thirty-two caliber Colt automatic, but sold it in a craps game. Okay. Also, when the Stark, the guy, was shot through the window in his home, it was a twenty-two. I don't know if I, I forget if I said that or not, but I want to make sure like that gun was different. Okay. So some officers also think, I didn't mention it here, but I knew I would remember it. Also said that maybe that wasn't part of, maybe that was a different killer. Like just another different random act of shooting. Because there was a different gun. Different gun. And it was like in a home. Mm-hmm. But 
He also tried to get into the home. Maybe he was escalating his game. I mean, these are all things that have clearly been talked about by right. people who've known about this since like 1946. But it happened during the, the same spree of murders in the same area. So, of course, it would affect the overall story of people's reactions to this shit. Right. But the main reason the cops believed it was Swinney was because of the information Peggy had known. Again, she kept, I cut some of this stuff out. They kept, she kept telling them her thing, just like things that he was doing or like she's just telling a whole story. Mm-hmm. Well, the cops knew parts of what she said, but some of what she said was new. You all also remained silent. Finally. Instead of protesting his innocence. Well, so at he, least he's not so saying, he just, yeah. <laughs> like, hey, idiots, I did this instead. Right, he was just being quiet. But all of this was circumstantial. There was no concrete proof connecting him to any of the murders. However, Swinney was a repeat offender in regards to car theft. And they were looking for some kind of reason to put him away. So, therefore, he was sentenced to life in prison, but a previous conviction eventually turned out to be void, as Sweeney had not had legal representation before 1946 for that car thievery. It was like a habeas corpus thing. Yeah, like there wasn't, well, the Miranda laws, I don't remember when they went into play, but it was I don't know either. closer to the 60s, but I if, say. When I read, stuff like that. Yeah, right. When I read this, it seemed like it was, they were like evening things out, so it was like the before times. So, like, so basically, he was released in 1973. And died at a nursing home in Dallas in huh. 1994. Well. So that's that's the end of him. Max Tackett and Tillman Johnson still believed he was the murderer and the facts on hand are enough or were enough to close the case. But as is, the case remains open. No one has ever been charged for these murders. Both of those officers passed away in 1972. Right. I can bet that, uh, that doesn't spawn any... Urban legends down in Texarkana. <laughs> Interesting, right? Yeah. A lot of this stuff came from the book, The Phantom Killer, Unlocking the Mystery of the Texarkana Serial Murders, The Story of a Town in Terror by James Presley. Mm-hmm. Wikipedia linked to that a lot. It's a book I actually would very much enjoy reading. Yeah. All right. I think I've seen the horror movie that's based off of this. Mm-hmm. You know what I have not seen? I want to. Because we, surprise, surprise, I do eventually mention that, but yeah. I've never seen it. Because they use screen caps when they show like the pillowcase murderer. Mm-hmm. And like, it just looks fucking terrifying. Yeah. All right. Well, this was printed in 1960. Dear Abby, if you are interested in teenagers, you will print this story. First off, weird, a weird, thing to weird, say. weird sentence. Yep. It's a very weird sentence. I don't know if I like it. I don't think I do. Mm-mm. But this continues. I don't know whether it's true or not, but it doesn't matter because it served its purpose for me. A fellow and his date pulled into their favorite lover's lane to listen to the radio and do a little necking. Or, as we'd say on this podcast. They were just debating. Debating. Yeah. The music was interrupted by an announcer who said there was an escaped convict in the area who had served time for rape and robbery. He was described as having a hook instead of a right hand. The couple became frightened and drove away. When the boy took his girl home, he went around to open the car door for her. Then he saw a hook on the door handle. Mm -hmm. I will never park to make out. 
as long as I live. I hope this is not I hope this does the same for other kids. Jeanette. Thank, sure. Thanks, Jeanette. Thanks, Jeanette, for being interested in teenagers, you weirdo. Right. <laughs> Culture is a weird thing. Mm-hmm. But this report sounds vaguely similar to the Phantom's first attack with the addition of the hook. Mm-hmm. Perhaps this is some very weird, contorted, hellish version of telephone. We've talked about that before. Yeah. The reverberations of the Texarkana murders would have spread across all across the country and would have could have lingered for years, which would have could have led to different takes on the same trope appearing in folklore all around the country. In a 1998 Snopes article, writer David Mickelson believes this to be a possibility. And that's what set me down this path. Right. Regardless, the idea of a lone killer attacking an isolated couple remains a pop culture fascination. The very story was used as the primary basis for the 1976 slasher film, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Mm-hmm. In that movie, it even has an analog for Manuel Gonzalez. Oh, really? He's in it. Like, not him. I don't look up the character. Well, I, I looked up the character's name, but just didn't put it in here. Mm-hmm. But it's like JD, like, it's like another, like, Hispanic sounding name. So, like, he's in the fucking movie. Gotcha. And I'm very excited about that because mm-hmm. allegedly it's fictional. There was another article when I took that weird message board deep dive. I mean, this archive, but like, because I was looking for, like, honest to God Manuel quotes. I want things like people talk about them, cool. But like, what? I want some more words out of your mouth. How how many badass lines did he whip right. out? Got some sick one-liners, right? But he did, was not called there until the murders, until the last murder. So, but I guess in the movie, he's maybe there as active murders are happening, mm-hmm. which that kind of cons- that kind of conspired to help the legend grow a little bit. But he got there as like the case was wrapping up, or well, they didn't know it was wrapping up at the time. They thought it was an ongoing thing. But once they caught that one guy, whether he was convicted or not, the killing stopped. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Mm-hmm. So there was a Blu-ray release of that film in 2013. There was also a remake in 2014. But the very concept... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to see. See, I'm not sure which one I saw. Because I remember... Did it seem older or newer? I don't remember. Because there was like a point when I was buying a bunch of like old horror movies. And, you know, but then I'm watching all sorts of horror movies. So I just remember watching special features on it and them talking about Yes. Every year they have a, um, these are just things I remember but didn't write down in here. I don't have to write everything down, but because I knew this would come to me. Um, Every year, Texarkana has like a film festival type thing. Yeah, they do like a screening of this and movie. They, they and they play stuff. it. Yeah. It's like, you guys. You guys are maniacs. Right. You're absurd. Yeah. I'm like, but bef- this, the thing in Wikipedia must have been before the Blu-ray came out because the only copies were like VHS and it said it cost like $175 to rent it to play this VHS tape for this Jeez. fucking festival. <laughs> I was like, what? So clearly that was before the Blu-ray came out. Right. But imagine like, holy shit. But the very concept itself, a man attacking kids about to debate, has graced the silver screen several times before. I know you did last summer comes to mind, especially because mm-hmm. it plays up the hook part. Yep. So it's more hook focused. But isn't Jason Voorhees the same thing? Except he replaces the hook with a machete as he wages his war on sexual activity and infidelity. 
and before he adorned a hockey mask, he wore a burlap sack with a hole cut out of it, mm-hmm. which is not dissimilar to a pillowcase. Correct. There's something phallic about a hook or a knife that makes the morality of the story stronger because other stories, of course, the one, the Dear Abby one, the first one from 1960, it's just like, hey, somebody's coming. But mm-hmm. a lot of them are like, the guy is trying to like, like date rape the girl. And she's like, no, don't. And he's like, fine, fuck you. And he's like, like spurs away so fast. And that's what rips the hook off the car. Mm-hmm. So that's like a warning. I'm like, you know, don't date rape your date, which is, you know. Seems like a good. It's a useful. I guess that's a good lesson to a, have it's in a, your story. <laughs> yeah, it's a useful parable. Yeah. Like, don't. Like, how about consent? Cool, huh? Yeah. That's a cool thing. And when the first or attack. you get murdered. Yeah. When someone says, take off your britches, no means no. Mm-hmm. No. Run the other way. Why are you running? <laughs> <laughs> you told me to run. Liar! God, you're such an Slam. asshole. Slam. What the fuck? <laughs> Yeah, so I mean about, you know, because there is something phallic about a hook or a knife that does make the morality of the story stronger. But then again, what's more phallic than a gun? I mean, one thing comes to mind, but. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. true. That was very phallic because it is. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) But Michael Myers, Ghostface and Scream Mm -hmm. are the Texarkana murders, the real life horror that all mask slasher films owe their legacy to. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it could be. I think it all goes back to that. I mean, yeah. it's I've seen I've seen this play out in every movie where that's involved. Yeah. Town's hysterical. People are freaking out. Mm-hmm. There's a mass killer on the loose. The idea that he pops up and just like uses a gun is like because all the slashers are like. But also later in the seventies, like the son of Sam, and mm-hmm. uh, the Zodiac killer, they go to Lovers Lane type situations and just like let loose. Yeah, just blow people away. And those are in the seventies, not the forties. Mm-hmm. So that can just kind of add to the legacy, too. And, I mean, we a lot of crazy fucking legends came out of the 70s. I mean, we've talked about a few of them. Like, just folklore and, like, yeah. creepy stuff. Everybody's just running around hunting monsters. Right. Nothing else to do. So, yeah, I do think that um, this story was about the hook man and became about the phantom killer because that's where all this shit, I think, based on me diving around and messing around, Right. I think it all goes back to that. Yeah. Back to that right. guy. Yep. Which is fucking scary. Yeah. So in this case, real life is scarier than fiction. Mm-hmm. Do you want a quick little epilogue? Yeah. What do we got? So what of the lone wolf? Yeah, what of him? In 1951, Gonzalez retired from the Rangers and became a technical consultant for movies, TV, and radio and moved to Hollywood. What show did he work on? Uh, it was one about the Texas Rangers. Was it? Yes. It wasn't the Lone <laughs> Ranger, but many people do believe the Lone Ranger was in a way based off of him. Okay. Doing, you know. Lone different, Ranger stuff. Different timely, st- right. Different time period. I don't know when that took place, but I mean, the man was born before the turn of the, the past century. Uh-huh. Which, of course, makes means he died on February 13th, 1977 in Dallas at the age of 85. That's the same place. Where Swinney died at the nursing home. It was Dallas. Yeah. But it was in 1994. Huh. JQ Mahaffey, again, Texarkana Gazette, you know, the editor, mm-hmm. 
said this of Gonzalez. He was one of the best looking men I have ever seen. Well, damn. (laughs) (laughs) And wore a spotless khaki suit and a white 10 gallon hat. Okay. He packed two ivory handled revolvers on his hips and did not deny that he was the ranger who sat in the cashier's office at the Crazy Water Hotel in Mineral Wells and gunned down two ex-convicts who sought to rob the place. He was so good-looking that my girl reporters would not leave him alone. Oh, damn. (laughs) Okay. They're just smitten with him. He really didn't have time to hunt down the Phantom. He was too busy giving out interviews and trying to run the Gazette. Okay. <laughs> Details. Yeah. All the other officers working on the case were intensely jealous of Lone Wolf and complained bitterly every time his picture appeared in the paper. Mahaffey also stated that after the murder of Virgil Starks, the police declared the farmhouse off limits to everybody. Quote, Several nights later, I was holding fourth in the Arkansas police station when a call came through that a neighbor had seen strange lights in the farmhouse. We sped to the scene and I hid behind a car while police chief Max Tackett and three other patrolmen approached the house. Chief Tackett yelled into the house that the place was surrounded and the phantom might as well give up. Who do you suppose walked out? Three of the girl reporters and the lone wolf. (laughs) I just like throwing their clothes on. Yeah. Well, you're not totally wrong. None other than Lone Wolf Gonzalez of the Texas Rangers and a woman photographer from Life and Time (laughs) magazines. (laughs) All right. Lone Wolf explained rather sheepishly that he had been reenacting the crime and the young lady was taking pictures of him. That's What are they doing? Okay. What are they doing? Police Chief Tackett turned to me and shouted at the uh, the top of his voice, Mahaffey, you can quote me as saying that the phantom murders will never be solved until Texarkana gets rid of the big city press and the Texas Rangers. <laughs> I say this for the end. Yeah. <laughs> Tillman Johnson, again, I said he was important. Whenever he came down the stairs from his hotel room, he called for the press. He was a showman. He was a handsome man. And I'd say, I'd say, and he made a good appearance. And of course, he had a reputation for being a killer. Because he actually was one. Mm-hmm. That's a weird thing, right? Yeah. He's an actual guy that just mows people down if need be, but he's also into like, hey, like that's the ultimate like cocky at it. Like, because you figure if you're just a guy shooting up the place, like you would speak, you would let it speak for itself. Yeah. But he's like, nah, I'm here. Here yeah. I am. Mm-hmm. Like, so earlier we were debating whether he swore or not or spoke softly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess it still doesn't answer that question because he doesn't have to swear. Yeah. But he totally knows exactly who he is. Right. So the press all followed Gonzalez. He also said, no, he didn't do any real police work himself. He'd get in that car and ride around, ask a lot of questions about what the other officers had found. Then he'd release it to the press like it was his information. It got to where after a while, some officers wouldn't tell him anything. Yeah. (laughs) Screw you, man. What the fuck are you doing? We're trying to catch an actual killer here, you, you idiot. I haven't mentioned this guy before, but his name is Lewis Swampy Graves. I mean, I think I did mention Graves earlier, but I didn't mention his nickname was Swampy. Mm-hmm. A Texarkana Gazette reporter. That's a, oh my god, what kind of a nickname for that? For, um, for that is that for a reporter? 
Hey, Swampy, get out of the case. Yeah, well, all right. Well, in 1946, described Gonzalez as a handsome man with a lot of personalities. Quote, he was well-built and wore a whipcord suit and a battle jacket with bright buttons. He was very clean-looking with an olive complexion and wore, uh, wore pearl-handled pistols, one on each hip. He looked like a typical Texas Ranger, said Graves. He would have been perfect in the old West. He fit the description going around in those years about the number of Texas Rangers needed to quell a riot and, of course, their unofficial motto. One riot, one Texas Ranger. So that's the story of the Phantom Killer, backstory behind the man with the hook, and Manuel Gonzalez, a.k.a. the Lone Wolf. Uh Little adventure to the old... Old enough, Texas. Yeah. And potentially the origin of all horror movies that involve one man killing everyone. Yeah, slashers. Right? Exactly, right? Mm-hmm. That's exactly what that is. Yep. And it actually happened. And it's horrifying. Mm-hmm. So that was fun to just uncover. Yep. It's going to bug me which movie I've seen, but... The, that or the, rem- the remake or the real one? Yeah. But I don't know. I'll figure it out eventually. All I know is that I'm dying to see it now because that's fucking incredible. Yeah. And if this is like Manuel Gonzalez, the real man, what is his made-up cartoonish right. movie version? Yeah. Like, how absurd is that? I don't know, because it's, it's probably been that long since I've seen it. That's why it could have yeah. been the remake. So I have no idea. Yeah. But yeah, I remember all, all this kind of, so pretty yeah. wild stuff. It's awesome. I, f- I thought that was a neat little backstory, because the point is, what I also wanted to talk about, which I'll just throw out here. Mm-hmm. At the end, as we close this out, was that they when when the Dear Abby story gets published and introduces like the hook, the hook man, because that's kind of that gets put out and that goes to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of towns have their own legends about if you go into the woods, the hook man will get you, the hook man will kill you. Mm-hmm. And I don't know in what fashion I will ever be able to address this in another episode because it was going to be this one, but I didn't want to, I didn't want it to be too long, but. Because um, then I would have to tell you a little bit about the backstory of Staten Island and how it's a dumping ground for all sorts of shit. And it's just like the forgotten borough of New York. Uh-huh. And how they dump everything there and there was an insane asylum. Okay. Okay. I think I will say this a little bit. No, I'll give you a little teaser. And a man worked there. All right. And then he escaped. No, he didn't escape. They shut it down. So then there was just a bunch of homeless people living in the woods, and the people who were employed there are now unemployed, so some of them start living in the woods. And there's just homeless people and orderlies who did physical therapy or security just live, putting tents in the woods of Staten Island living there. Okay. Okay? Mm-hmm. And then um, kids start missing. Okay. They start being abducted. And I'll leave it there. But before this started happening, the Hookman legend of Staten Island was called Cropsy. If you've heard that name before, have you never heard that name before? I don't think so. Okay. I don't, because like, I was just going to talk about Cropsy, but really all there is to say about it is kind of what I'm telling you right now in this little conclusion. Uh-huh. That happened, the, the, uh, was, it was Willowbrook Insane Asylum, and Geraldo Rivera had a special on it, which you can watch on YouTube where he goes into this place and there's all these um, um, disabled and mentally challenged kids and kids with like what, we, what you 
people may call deformities, living in shit and piss and filth. Like there's a video of it. It's horrifying. Huh. So the guy who allegedly had done this, who is uh, Andre Rand maybe? I think his name was Andre Rand. I watched the whole documentary in preparation for this and I was like, I can't, because mm-hmm. the documentary can make things go longer, you know? Yeah. But so then this guy was, they could never, they would charge him with these kidnappings of these kids, but not the actual murders themselves. And he hasn't talked to people and the people making this documentary, like we're going to interview him, but then he didn't want to do the interview, but he would send them letters. And so um, after, like the, he agreed to do an interview okay. and they go to the insane asylum. But then when they go there, he tells the people there, he's like, I don't want to talk to them. So they're like, well, fuck you. So yeah. they leave. So they haven't talked to this guy. It's just been letters. Like he's been writing like cop over like the transcripts of his trials. He's been like writing notes and sending it to him. So it's like a back and forth. Uh-huh. But so then he leaves a message after he calls them. He gets their number and leaves them a message like you haven't responded to my letters. So like he's trying to play like this the ultimate like cat and mouse game. But yeah. He still wants attention. And they didn't give it to him. But the point is in Staten Island there was always a legend of Cropsy. And this guy kind of became Cropsy. And there's another movie, when I mentioned my movies, called The Burning, where the villain is called Cropsy. The origin story is different, because basically a bunch of kids pull a prank on a guy who is a janitor, mm-hmm. and they burn him alive. Mm-hmm. So he gets scarred, and so he's a scarred man who leaves the hospital and goes into the woods and just starts killing kids. Yeah, I own The Burning. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. Yeah, but the Cropsy is like that Staten Island legend, and he's Cropsy in the movie, and so that all kind of ties together in this weird little I thing. I Remember that though, right? So, but huh. yeah, the, the name of that guy is Cropsy, but he doesn't have a hook for a hand. He does a lot of other stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's not good for anybody. But yeah. that's kind of where all that wanted to go. So that's just little little treat. I figured we get this New Year off with a bang by talking about a hook, a hook. It's <laughs> a hook for the next year. Yeah. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Cool. But yeah, that's where I went. So that was, you know, enjoyable. Yeah. Ah, oh, man. You know what else is enjoyable? What? If people contact us on the social media. Yeah, if they, they leave us messages like Cropsy does. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, leave me a voice message. Why didn't you respond to my email? Because well, you didn't send one. Yeah, because you didn't send one. So send me one. But you can yell at us either yeah. way. Yeah, so. we're at Weird and Feared Podcast at gmail.com on the Facebooks, on the Instagrams. Um, Always try and post the, the good old Instagram stories to get in there. Just to, if you want a quick little thing about, you know, that'll kind of tell you when we're doing stuff. If you follow us, kind of easy way to pay attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Patreon, which is just weird and feared. No spaces on the Patreon. You can search it and find us there and help support the show. Help us buy movies to watch. Help us, you know, buy all these books I, I want to own. Yeah. Lots of research because the to, Internet's hard to research sometimes. It can be. And it's just sometimes better to, because I can pull the, because like when we, I mean, we'll be honest about it. When we pull this shit from Wikipedia, we're referencing books mm-hmm. and articles and stuff. But like having the books in my hand to be able to comb through most of it myself yep. is very enjoyable. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's only a lot, so much you can do within a week span, but I love just getting into it and finding stuff. Because I had no idea this was a thing until, until today. Mm-hmm. And now it's a whole thing that will inspire me forever. And clearly it's inspired movie makers and storytellers since then. Yep. But like those storytellers, um, everybody just stay spooky. Yeah, stay spooky. Right? Yep. Stay spooky. <laughs>